Welcome to Already Gone. I'm your host, Nina Instead. And before we dig into this week's story, I want to let you know about an event coming up in Chicago this summer, the True Crime Podcast Festival on Saturday, July 13th in Chicago, Illinois. I'll be there, along with hosts from shows like The Vanished, Canadian True Crime, Empty Frames, Trace Evidence, Generation Y, and True Crime All the Time, as well as many, many others. Attendees can spend the day with their favorite hosts in a casual setting, as well as sit in on live shows, enjoy panel discussions, and participate in other special programming. I've posted a link to the event in the show notes, and I hope to see you there. Now, on with the show. When you conjure up the image of a tough person... What do you see? Are they tall and built, muscular? Are they covered in tattoos? Do they have a certain glint in their eye or carry themselves a certain way? Or is it that they're smart, focused, accomplished? Their skill, their willpower, and their determination leaves you awestruck when you realize how tough they really are. At first glance, Alexandra Nicolette Bruger may not strike you as tough and capable. The only child of parents Nikki and Franz Brueger, she was known as Allie to those close to her. Allie doesn't fit the stereotype of tough. Standing only four foot nine inches tall, with short brown hair and luminous blue eyes, Allie was an educated and accomplished young woman. Described as serious, but with a great sense of humor, Allie was beloved by her family and friends. A close relationship with her mother, Nikki, meant that she was comfortable leaning on mom for support, because even the strongest among us needs someone to help us up from time to time. Allie was raised in Rose Township, a small community at the north end of Oakland County. While it's still in the Metro Detroit area, her home was only 20-some miles from Flint, but almost 50 miles from the city of Detroit. And after graduating from Holly High School, Allie attended Baker College, where she studied nursing. When she completed college, she took a job with the Hurley Healthcare System in Flint. Later, she decided to branch out and accepted a position in South Oakland County, far from where she grew up, joining the staff at Providence Hospital in Novi, known as Prov Park to the locals. While the Providence System and South Oakland County were new to her, Allie took it in stride. She made friends and did good work, which endeared her to both patients and co-workers alike. In addition to working 12-hour night shifts caring for patients at Prov Park, Allie enjoyed writing. Writing was her passion, and she was quietly working on a graduate degree to improve her skills as an author and artist. Nursing was a career that she loved, but writing, that was her real passion. Allie's love of words started when she was very young. Allie devoured the library books her mother brought home for her, and as a teenager and student at Holly High School, Allie switched from being a voracious reader to creating her own works. One of her poems was featured in a book, as part of a contest that she'd participated in, and that book has a treasured spot on the Brueger bookshelf. As an adult, Allie's love of reading continued. 
She always had a book nearby and even went with her mother to see David Sedaris, one of her favorite writers, speak when he made an appearance at Michigan State University. Allie had a laptop and kept notebooks filled with her work, some written for school as she worked on her graduate degree, others written for her pleasure to fuel her creative fires. When she wasn't working or writing, Allie was an avid runner, and on a typical day, she'd slip on her shoes and set out on 10-mile runs through her neighborhood in North Oakland County. The mix of paved and unpaved, semi-rural roads was where she did her thinking, where she decompressed after a tough shift, where she drafted her next piece of writing or quietly cleared her head. Those runs were something she looked forward to, something Allie enjoyed. At 31 years old, Allie moved back in with her parents in Rose Township, the small rural community where she grew up. While she was a young professional with a good career in nursing, and she didn't seem like the type of person who would move back home in her 30s, she had her reasons. Allie had gone back to school to earn a graduate degree in writing, and living at home helped ease the emotional and financial burden that accompanies such study. Her second reason for moving back home is that she'd recently ended a two-year relationship with a co-worker from Prov Park, a man by the name of Wes Sutherland. The pair had been living together in an apartment close to the hospital, and a breakdown in the relationship meant that Allie needed to find a new place to live, which is an expensive task for anyone, especially someone early in their nursing career, paying for graduate school and facing the prospect of living alone. Moving back in with her parents allowed Allie to save some money, pay her tuition, and spend more time focused on writing. It gave her the stability that comes from being home again, and the safety to grow and flourish in a new direction. Nikki was thrilled to have her daughter back at home, as the pair were close. Another advantage to living with her folks was Zeus. Zeus is a boxer mix that her parents took in in early 2016. Zeus is a big, sturdy dog with short white fur, flopped over ears, and a thick muzzle. Zeus struggled with the separation anxiety, and Allie became one of his favorite people. Before she moved back home, she made sure to give him special attention when visiting her parents. Now that she was living with her parents, Zeus watched her and he followed her around. Each day that she went out on a run, the dog would situate himself in the picture window and wait for her return. Allie's mom, Nikki, would reassure him, It's okay, Zeus. Allie will be back. But Zeus would watch at the window for Allie to come back, anxious to be reunited with one of his favorite people. Allie never dreamed that one day she wouldn't return and that Zeus would remain waiting and watching, not knowing that Allie had been killed doing one of the things that brought her so much joy. Allie never dreamed that running, the sport that helped calm and center her, would lead to a gruesome, bloody end. So come with me to the afternoon of July 30th, 2016, the day that Zeus waited and Allie never came home. July 30th was a perfect summer day in Metro Detroit. The blue sky was dotted with small puffy clouds and the temperature is headed for 80 degrees. 
It was about one in the afternoon when Allie changed into her running clothes and laced up her shoes. It was a great day to go out for a run. Now, Allie had a path that she usually followed on the run, her feet pounding against unpaved roads, her heart thudding joyfully along as she moved. And Allie usually wore headphones while running, music filling her ears, the sound helping her run, setting a rhythm to her steps. And this day was no different, and her route took her along Fish Lake Road. Except this day was different. The world was about to come crashing down on the Brueger family. She was about halfway through her run when gunshots rang out as her small feet rhythmically hit the ground. It was 2.30, and Allie was in her happy place, out for a run. Now, Rose Township and the Holly area is mostly rural, and gunshots, either from hunters or target shooting in the area, are not an uncommon sound. So I wonder, did she hear the first shot? Allie had music keeping her company. Did the crack of the weapon pull her focus? Did she know the shot was aimed at her? Or did she assume that the shots were from hunters too close to the path? The first shot was quickly followed by two more. It was the fourth shot that hit home, striking Allie in the back. Police now believe that Allie saw the person who killed her, the murderer who leveled a shotgun at her and opened fire. They believe that Allie realized exactly what was happening and ran from her killer, seeking desperately to avoid the gunfire that would take her life. Once the bullet struck its mark, tearing into her body and leaving a path of destruction, the killer put the gun down, got into his or her car, and drove away, leaving the area and leaving Allie's mortally wounded body behind. We talked about Allie being tough, and once she'd been hit, once the shotgun tore into her body, she staggered, but she kept going, her strong legs guiding her to the yard of a nearby home, where a startled homeowner watched the petite brunette collapse. Allie didn't give up. She fought right until the end, making it to safety before being overcome by the severity of her wounds. This woman was not the traditional image of strength or of toughness, but she was a fighter till the very end. She knew that if she had any chance of surviving, she needed to keep moving, to keep going until she found someone to help. If she'd stayed on the road, she would be waiting for a vehicle to drive past and see her, something that could take quite a while on a quiet dirt road where she was attacked. Adrenaline coursed through her as she pushed on to the nearest house, only stopping and collapsing once it was in plain view. The homeowner attended to her, administering first aid while calling 911 for help. State troopers reached the scene first and assisted until an ambulance arrived and took over the care of Allie, doing everything in their power to save this young woman who had her whole life ahead of her. Alas, the damage from the gunshot was too great, and 31-year-old Allie Brueger, a nurse, writer, and only child of Franz and Nikki, was pronounced dead at Genesis Regional Medical Center. Her case only makes a blip in the news cycle that night, jogger killed in North Oakland County. Headlines like that conjure up an image of a car accident, 
someone veering off the road, not seeing the jogger. It may not be the last thing people would think, but a shooting certainly wouldn't be top of the list. It will be a day or two before people realize that Allie died in a bizarre and unprovoked attack that sends the quiet community where she grew up into a state of fear. Why would someone shoot Allie Brueger? Who would fire at her four times with a shotgun in broad daylight while she was out for a run? Those things, those types of brutal murders, they, they just don't happen here. At least, that's what people thought until it did happen. Until Allie's murder brought darkness and fear into a quiet community. And I remember watching her case blow up that summer. The murder itself was so bizarre. Who attacks a runner with a shotgun? Who shoots at someone four times in the middle of the day? The attack was brazen and violent and inexplicable. Michigan State Police immediately dig into the case, but leads are thin and they have little to go on. The only thing they do have is they know the weapon used in the killing was a shotgun and reports of a light-colored four-door sedan in the area. As Fish Lake Road, and Rose Township in general, is rural, sparsely populated, there aren't traffic cameras or security cameras from local businesses to rely on for additional information. Allie, who was pronounced dead minutes after the shooting, she can't help them. If she said anything to the man who came to her aid when she collapsed in his yard, it wasn't made public. The only lead seems to be a white or light-colored four-door sedan seen in the area after the shooting. However, it wasn't confirmed that the light sedan was even involved. It was just in the area at the time. Perhaps the car was carrying the shooter, maybe a witness, although no witness has come forward, despite a $13,500 reward being offered for information leading to an arrest. Now, the light-colored sedan could be completely unrelated, its occupants in the area at the wrong time. As I sit here, writing in the quiet of my local library, I look out over the parking lot and I see three cars, three light-colored sedans that fit the description. The information is so general that it's really not a help to investigators. If you decide to look at the area where Allie was killed, if you bring up Fish Lake Road on Google Maps, the person responsible for her death was either following Allie or they knew the area very well. Fish Lake Road is a dirt road with no turnoffs. Allie was shot on a long wooded stretch between Rattley Lake Road and Rose Center Road. There are no side streets. There's no alleys that you can duck down. If someone in a vehicle followed her, they had to continue down Fish Lake Road. If they hid in the woods, they could have disappeared into the adjacent Rose Oaks County Park, a 640-acre undeveloped park with several lakes and miles of trails for hikers and equestrians. And if her killer was on foot, they must have watched Allie, learned her routine, slipping out of the woods to shoot her, then leaving the way they came, on foot. However, the chances of running into someone while carrying a shotgun make this risky. If the police are looking for a car, I would guess her killer made his or her escape using that method of transport. 
A shotgun can be easily hidden in a vehicle, and a calm demeanor while leaving the scene would mean little or no attention given to the driver or the car. Allie's parents, Franz and Nikki, are devastated at the loss of their only child. Her murder is the very definition of senseless, and it also appears to be random. Allie didn't have any enemies. Adding to their grief is the knowledge that Allie wanted to be an organ donor should the unthinkable happen. But the brutal nature of her death, the shotgun blast that tore through her body, then the violation of an autopsy? Well, it was impossible. She couldn't donate her organs. It, like everything they ever wanted or hoped for their only child, is stripped away. The Brugers are left with questions, anger, and grief. The anger and the grief they can process, they can work through, but the questions, those are harder, and no one has answers. In the almost three years since their only child was murdered, questions seem to be the only thing that remain. As law enforcement digs into Allie's life, looking at those closest to her, pulling phone records and examining her digital footprint, a picture emerges of a quiet, private person, someone with plenty of friends and no known enemies. When someone is killed, you often hear, but who would do something like that? Everyone loved them. And Allie was no exception. Hardworking and loved, Allie's family and friends couldn't think of one person who would want to hurt her, much less see her dead. And this only added to their confusion and hurt. Law enforcement is forced to consider that the attack was random, or an act of road rage that got out of hand. A driver annoyed at having to share the narrow dirt road with a jogger. But neither of those theories holds police attention for long. And they start thinking that maybe Allie knew her killer, and that her killer knew just where to find her. Allie's family makes funeral arrangements. While they did not raise their daughter to follow a particular religion, as an adult, Allie gravitated toward the Catholic Church, attending programs at St. Rita's Parish in Holly. It was at one of these programs Allie got to know a parishioner who worked as a nurse, and Nikki Bruger believes that this is what led her daughter to choose a career in nursing. Franz and Nikki make the funeral arrangements something no parent should ever have to do for their child, and a funeral mass is planned at St. Rita's, the church that Allie attended, on Wednesday, August 10th. The Brugers request that in lieu of flowers, donations be made to the local boxer rescue in Allie's name, a generous act to honor Allie's gentle and giving spirit, and a fitting tribute to the bond between Allie and Zeus. As police continue their investigation, they look at Wes Sutherland, a fellow employee at Prov Park. Allie and Wes were in a relationship for more than two years before breaking things off, and Allie returned to her parents' home. Being a love interest and someone who is on the outs with Allie moves him to the top of the suspect list. Police also take a close look at her parents, Franz and Nikki. Again, the pattern is to examine those closest to the victim. The Brugers, devastated by the loss of their only child, are shocked to find themselves scrutinized by investigators. 
In a September 21st, 2016 news story, Allie's mother, Nikki Bruger, gives a voice to her pain, telling the press, quote, We have nothing now. We don't have her. There won't be a wedding. There are no grandchildren. It is the worst thing that could have happened. Nothing else matters. I could die now and be with her. Nikki's grief is, it's enough to break your heart. Three months after the murder and the Michigan State Police remind the public that they are still working the case, but a crime like this, it's going to take time. It won't be wrapped up as quickly as they'd hoped. Surveillance footage is mentioned in the newspaper articles. With no further details as to where the footage was from, and only one detail about what the footage revealed. Apparently, it contained a man wearing sandals, whom the police wanted to question. From the evidence gathered on the surveillance footage and from the tip line, suspects are questioned and houses are searched, but nothing concrete came from the leads. Allie's former boyfriend, Wes Sutherland, is scrutinized by police. Listeners, I'm going to be candid with you. The behavior of Wes Sutherland in the wake of Allie's murder is, at best, concerning and could be construed as downright bizarre. From creating his own online celebrity to publicly accusing Allie's father of murdering her, we're going to talk about his actions in the months after the murder, but first, a word from our sponsor. It's not unusual for the partner of a murder victim to be the prime suspect. It is in the best interest of that partner to cooperate with police so they can be cleared and other suspects can be looked into. Wes Sutherland, the boyfriend that Allie had left shortly before her murder, he was no exception. Wes was subjected to searches of his physical and digital property, multiple interviews, and at least one intensive polygraph test. And from what I've read and seen, he participated and cooperated. He did what he was supposed to do. Now, the family of the victim, they can expect to be interviewed as well. Nikki and Franz were extensively questioned following their daughter's fatal shooting. However, they either did not take a polygraph or police have not released the results. And this polygraph... This is something that Wes is going to fixate on, and it's one of the reasons that he made public for suspecting that Allie's parents were more involved with her death than they were letting on. He brought up their lack of polygraph multiple times on social media in his attempts to direct the blame and suspicion onto Allie's parents. Wes became very active on multiple social media platforms, including a website where open and unresolved cases are discussed. He claimed that he and Allie had not broken up. There was a disagreement about the timing, about when they would get married, and Wes needed to finish nursing school, but Allie wanted to work on her graduate degree, so she decided to move home. But Wes insists that the pair remained a couple with plans to become engaged over the December holidays and later get married once Wes was done with nursing school. He said that Allie was still in regular contact with him and even stayed over at his apartment, 
the home they once shared, several times a week. Allie's mother, Nikki, disputes this claim that her daughter had no intention of getting married or getting engaged, not to Wes and not to anyone else. While Wes did cooperate with police for the initial searches and interviews, his behavior became more and more bizarre as time went on. Wes began to insist that the police investigate Franz, Ellie's father, citing a poor relationship between the two as motive for murder. Wes stated that Franz had not wanted Ellie to move home, while Ellie returning to the house was a decision that her mother, Nikki, supported. Wes added that Ellie and Nikki's relationship was solid, but that Allie supposedly preferred that her father not be in the picture. Wes brought up text messages that had been sent between Franz and Nikki after Allie's death, which painted Franz as cold and unemotional about his daughter's murder. It's been said many times on many different podcasts, and I'm going to repeat it. Everyone grieves in different ways. Some cry, some laugh, Some crave the company of others, and some detach from everyone and everything they love. Unemotional does not equal uncaring, and it certainly doesn't equal a murderer. As part of his so-called evidence against Franz, Wes brought up the birthday party that was held for Allie two months after she died, that Wes and Nikki attended, but Franz did not. Wes found this suspicious. However, attending the birthday party of a child that you've just buried would be an emotional task and not one that everyone would be up for. As time went on, Wes began making more and more concerning comments on social media. He accused Nikki of changing the narrative of Allie and Wes's relationship depending on her mood. Wes painted Nikki and Franz as possessive. Nikki being possessive of her daughter and Franz being possessive of Nikki. And he used Franz's possessive nature as a motive for killing his daughter and Nikki's fear of her husband as her motivation to keep quiet. The discovery of a shotgun in the Brueger house further fueled Wes's allegations. He fixated on why Franz would have a hidden shotgun, ignoring the fact that having a gun is not that uncommon in American homes, and it's really not uncommon in a rural area. While police have not publicly released their findings related to the shotgun found at the Brueger home, it can be assumed that the gun was tested and ruled out as the murder weapon. The comments that Wes made on multiple social media sites became more erratic, more nonsensical, continuing his insistence that Franz was involved, that Nikki was lying to cover up what her husband had done, presenting evidence that was circumstantial at best. Wes was eventually removed from at least one website, but not before threatening to come back under a different username to continue his posts. None of Wes's theories are backed up by solid evidence, and the police are not investigating Franz or Nikki further since they do not believe that either of Allie's parents were involved in the murder. Recently, Franz submitted to a polygraph in an effort to clear any doubt which he, quote, passed with flying colors. Remember, listeners, no one has been arrested, charged, or named a person of interest in the case— that includes Wes and Nikki's parents. While police did talk with them, as far as I know, 
They are not the focus of the investigation. I have my own theory about a little-known and little-discussed possible suspect, a man who lived on Allie's running route. He's a possible person of interest in two other unsolved shootings. The first shooting took place in the 1990s, and the second, a double homicide involving a shotgun in 2005, There's connections between him and those two cases, and as far as I know, he has not yet been ruled out in the Brugger case. But without additional information offered to investigators, it is unlikely that this man will be pursued. It's been almost three years since Allie Brugger was murdered on a warm summer afternoon in Rose Township, and the Michigan State Police continue to work her case. They're following up on leads as they come in. Hundreds of tips have come into the tip line, and they're followed up on by officers assigned to the case, officers who are determined not to let it go cold. While the case file is still thin, and Nikki and Franz are no closer to having answers, they live every day knowing that the person who took their daughter from them still walks free. If you have information which leads to the arrest of the person or persons responsible for the murder of Alexandra Allie Brueger, please call 1-855-MISH-TIP. That's 1-855-642-4847. You can also call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-SPEAK-UP. That's 1-800-773-2587. The current reward offered by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms is worth $5,000, and the Crime Stoppers reward is $8,500 for a total of $13,500 in rewards. Keep in mind, if you have information, Crime Stoppers pays for information leading to an arrest, not a conviction. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.